A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we do on Condensed Histories is the clues in the title. We take a piece of pop culture and we condense it. I give you a little bit of summary about it. But, as I've said on many times before, what you've got with this pop culture is it's either deliberately being influenced by real history or it's subconsciously being influenced by real history and I condense the history as well so this is like a super condensed almost like something like uranium in a nuclear bomb in terms of energized energy all concentrated up smushed together and it's going to explode out I'm still not sure how he caused the meltdown. There wasn't any nuclear material in the truck. Into this joyous podcast. Well, I'm not entirely sure how joyous we're going to be on this particular occasion, but there we go. So, if you have already clicked on this podcast, in which case you'd be hearing me saying this anyway, it's very surreal recording this stuff before the things come out. Remember, I don't get to see exactly titles and things like that. I'm presuming it says Rambo or Rambo 3. And the reason for this is because... Yes, there's a lot going on in the news at the moment around Rambo 3. Don't understand? I'll take you back. As always, I start with the pop culture and then I lead into the real history. So, in 1972, David Morrell wrote a book called First Blood about a Vietnam veteran called John Rambo. Don't push it, I'll give you a war you won't believe. Who has returned to the United States and basically is walking through small town America where in in essence there's an antagonistic relationship between him and a sheriff and this turns into basically a manhunt where he uses his skills of being a special forces soldier in Vietnam in the forests of North America. And if that sounds familiar, yeah, it was turned into a movie, but just before that, in the original book, at the end, John Rambo dies. So, that was 1972, at a time when there was still conflict, and there still was a South Vietnam in the world. And meanwhile, in 1976, we get the movie Rocky, starring Sylvester Stallone, 
where he's even nominated for Best Actor. It's really interesting. I, I really recommend you go back to the advertisements around it, like the trailer around Rocky and some of the reviews around Rocky. The first one, people are literally comparing it, that performance of Sylvester Stallone, to Marlon Brando. It really does feel a lot like On the Waterfront. I could have been a contender. It's really interesting how... Stallone is seen as a new serious actor, like somebody like Robert De Niro. That would be more appropriate in terms of the generational thing. You talking to me? And the original Rocky is a great film. It's, it's very dark and gritty. And then Stallone went on to do a few other films. Of all this Oscar success, he wrote the screenplay as well. And none of this sort of caught fire. So he went back and did Rocky II. Huge, huge hit again. This time he even directed. And again, he does a few films after Rocky II. And they, they just don't land. They, they don't get the, anything like the critical or commercial success of the Rocky series. So, basically by the early 1980s, Stallone's a bit worried because is he just a one-trick pony? You know, he is trying and diversifying into all these different areas, just not working. And so he is given the First Blood novel and he recognises this as a chance to play something a bit different. Rocky is a, a lovable rogue, whereas John Rambo is a damaged person. Yes, both of them are physical. But if you like, Rocky Balboa never went to Vietnam. He's never killed anybody. John Rambo has. Rocky Balboa wishes to continue to fight. John Rambo absolutely doesn't. He has fought his war and he wants to just turn his back on it. Well, look, John, we can't have you running around out there wasting friendly civilians. There are no friendly civilians. So there are big differences. And the thing about First Blood, the book, and in 1982, First Blood starring Sylvester Stallone, the movie, is they are clearly anti-war films. They're showing you the damage. And if you like, very specific to Vietnam, this, this is something that I mentioned in my Vietnam special episode. If you haven't listened to that, check it out, go back. You know, there are lots of different episodes covering lots of different topics. And with this particular story, it's showing you and reminding the world about how these men fought in Vietnam. They didn't really have much of a, of a say in it. Most of them were conscripts. And they, were, they went back home and because of the kind of counterculture thing, cultural revolution in America, you know, these people were spat at and referred to as baby killers. And they were, they were only following orders. They, are, you know, they were young kids, the average age, as the other 1980s pop sensation, Paul Hardcastle's number one song, 19, the average age of a combat soldier in Vietnam was 19. In World War II, the average age of the combat soldier was 26. In Vietnam, he was 19. In, 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 in Vietnam, he was 19. You know, not even 20 years old. So with all that in mind, yes, there's this sort of serious center to First Blood, but there's an action movie around it as well. But it's quite a muted action movie. It's quite somber. I've shown my kids it because the weird thing is, basically only John Rambo only kills one person in the entire movie, and that's by accident. Basically, the helicopter, the guy's firing rifle at him, and he throws a rock at the helicopter, the helicopter wobbles, and the man firing the rifle falls out of the helicopter. You know, this is not him machine-gunning hundreds of, of Americans or anything like this, and he is desperately trying to avoid... I mean, he's more than happy to use non-lethal force on these people, but he doesn't want to kill anymore. 
It's a really important message. And interestingly, while they were making it, Sylvester Stallone was very close to sort of following the book. And it was a two hour, slightly longer movie. And he realized in the editing suite, this is not working. This is actually a very slow, boring movie. So they actually cut out more of the character piece and some of the quieter moments and made it a much tighter 90 minute action movie. Good job too, because it was a huge hit. This was finally Sylvester Stallone being something different to Rocky Balboa and genuinely having a big hit. And like the Rocky series, the Rambo series has gone on to have a number of big hits. There are a total of five Rambo movies of varying quality. I'm going to say the Rambo movies are much less well-loved than the Rocky films. So that was in 1982, 10 years after the book came out, and now substantially after the events of Vietnam. And if you like, Sylvester Stallone kind of got there before, because the, the 1980s, the later 1980s, was just drenched in all these sort of great Vietnam movies. Full Metal Jacket, Platoon, Born on the Fourth of July, Hamburger Hill they all came out years after First Blood. So, whereas Apocalypse Now had already come out... Charging a man with murder in this place was like handing out speeding tickets at the Indy 500. And there were a few other sort of small art house movies about Vietnam. And, of course, the terrible Green Berets in the actual during the Vietnam War. You let me worry about that Green Beret. You're what this is all about. Stallone was kind of at the beginning of, shall we say, serious reviews of Vietnam. To his credit on that. But all of that was thrown out the window with the 1985 sequel, First Blood Part 2, which is actually says Rambo, First Blood Part 2. And in that movie, whereas, as I've said, it's clearly the first film is very much anti-war. Second one is Yeehaw War. And James Cameron was actually the scriptwriter on that. And he said, you know, I wrote the script and sort of set up the action pieces. I left the politics to other people. But this was sort of like Rambo politics was very much sort of picked up by the president of the United States, the then president, Ronald Reagan, and the yeehaw, gung-ho, kick-ass attitude stuff was all in there. Basically, in Rambo First Blood Part 2, doesn't really make any sense as a name, he gets to go back to Vietnam. And throughout the 1980s, there were these rumours of like prisoners of war that were still being kept by the communist Vietnamese. It doesn't really make a lot of sense, because if you're using them as a bargaining chip, you need to admit they exist. And if you're not using them as a bargaining chip, why are you having these sort of embarrassing people sitting around? Clearly, to be blunt, you would probably execute them and put them in a grave in the jungle and nobody would ever find them. What was the point of keeping these people alive? But this was the thing that was around throughout the 1980s. Like, oh, they're still American soldiers in the deep in the jungles. That's the basic plot of Rambo First Blood Part Two. Goes in and, you know, he says one of his famous lines from the film is, do we get to win this time? Do we get to win this time? In other words, you know, gloves are off. We're just going to show those commies what we've got to do. And, you know, there's torture scenes, huge, huge amounts of violence, shooting. He uses his bow again. You know, he's always got to use stuff other than just guns, but he does use a lot of guns. He even flies a helicopter in this one. There's a sort of helicopter chase. It is absolutely the opposite of the original First Blood. And if you like, that's why I switch off immediately at that point. I am not interested. I like the first one, and weirdly, I like the fourth one, because it kind of goes back to war is bad and nasty. 
but it was a huge hit. Make no mistake about it. Rambo 2, which is what I'll just call it now, was a huge hit in 1985. Then, in 1987, there's a James Bond movie called Living Daylights. What is big? Scouring plug to clean out the pipeline. This one's been specially designed to carry a man. Don't worry, Yorgi, it's a piece of cake. <laughs> Never mind cake. If you open valve before 100, he will be pushed. And of course, in the 1980s, we are still during the Cold War era. You know, Top Gun is against the Russians, and Living Daylights is against the Russians, and lots of James Bond movies are against the Soviet Union. But the Living Daylights in 1987 latches onto is the fact that in 1979, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. And in 1987, the Soviet Union was still fighting in Afghanistan. And so you've got this rather strange, certainly to the modern eye, image of James Bond linking up with these brave Muslim fighters fighting against the Soviets, these mujahideen he's helping train, he's getting sorts of help and support from as he fights those damn communists again. And then in 1988, Rambo goes to Afghanistan and once again he fights with these brave Muslim insurgent rebels against the evil communist empire. Now what's interesting is at the time Rambo 3 was the most expensive movie ever made. About 65 million dollars, got to adjust for inflation, probably it would be about 300 million dollars today just for one movie. That is a lot of money. Now in the end it about trebled its budget globally but in America it was a flop so it was a bit of an embarrassment and it's been remembered as one of the most expensive disappointments of all time to give you an idea by now we'd had Rockies 3 and 4 we'd had Rambo 2 which is a monster monster hit and so now that he's getting Rambo 3 Sylvester Stallone could ask for anything he wanted and one of the things he asked for was a Gulf jet stream a sort of personal jet and he got one as part of his package so this was a ludicrously expensive movie incredibly just like the second one incredibly jingoistic America good communism bad zero subtlety here oh these guys are fighting communists well they've got to be good guys then and they don't half look like the Taliban they're not actually the Taliban I think the word Taliban is actually used in the living daylight. I could be wrong on that. Somebody might want to fact check me on that. But yeah, James Bond, in essence, both of them are fighting with Mujahideen, which means sort of holy warriors in Islamic. Now, to be fair, it gets complicated, but some Mujahideen become Taliban. Some of them fight the Taliban after the Soviet Afghan war. But the interesting thing is we get Rambo three coming out in 1988. Unfortunately for Mr. Stallone, the Geneva Accords, which end the war, also come out in 1988. Now, the final drawdown of Soviet troops doesn't sort of finish off until February 89. But what everybody knew is that the Soviet Union was about to surrender its influence over Afghanistan at the exact moment this movie came out. Now, they didn't know that quite when they were filming, and that's why if you like, it was quite clever of Sylvester Stallone when it came to Rambo 4. 20 years later, by the way. Everyone was so wounded by Rambo 3 that it took 20 years for another Rambo film to come out. And even then it was on the back of the success of the revamping of the Rocky 
franchise with Rocky Balboa, but that was in Burma against the incredibly evil military regime there, sort of protecting, again, a real group of ethnic minority in Burma, which, or Myanmar as it's now called, and that was all still very much happening and would continue for years in Burma. Indeed, today, right now, Burma, Myanmar, what to call it, whatever you will, it's had its chance at democracy. It seems to now be sort of the generals have come back again. It's, it's a mess in that region. So it was sort of bad political luck because if you like Rambo 2, I'm going to say you're going to like Rambo 3. The stunts are even bigger. Stallone is even even more ripped, incredibly ripped. I mean, he got down to about 2% body fat uh, just for Rambo 2. And there was even Burkhoff, a British actor who was playing the Russian general in the second movie. He was saying that in some of the scenes, they had to have the heat up so much because Sylvester Stallone, you know, he looks amazing. But the problem with having these incredibly chiseled muscles it means you have no body fat which means you have zero resistance to cold temperatures so the the set had to be super hot because if he's standing there without a shirt on basically he'd be shivering all the time sometimes these people who look super duper fit and look they are very very strong actually they've made other compromises with their bodies a little bit of body fat's not a bad thing obviously too much is obesity and can lead to diabetes please don't do that but try to see it my way all my life i've been an obese man trapped inside a Batman's body. So what we've got here, and this is why I wanted to say this, this is why I've created this one relatively quickly, is it gives me a chance to talk about pop culture's references to Afghanistan, because, oh my goodness, this is 2021, and a lot's happening in Afghanistan at the moment, and a lot of terrible comparisons are happening too. So this is a chance for me to say, what is it like, and what is it not like? Let's start at the beginning with the area that we call today Afghanistan, which over the millennia has been called multiple different things. For example, Bactria and Sogdia, for example. These are sort of different regions within Afghanistan. So one of the things that you keep hearing today is why did the Soviet Union bother going in? It was always going to be the Soviet Union's Vietnam. And, you know, why did NATO bother going in in 2001? I've heard some people say, ah, you know, it's just America wanting their oil. It's like, okay, well, if you do any kind of research, you'll discover that Afghanistan has no oil. So if America was going in for the oil, America's even dumber than you think they are. That would be Iraq, okay? We can, we can discuss that all you want, but no, that's not Afghanistan, sorry. But one of the things you keep hearing is like, you know, anybody who decides to try and invade Afghanistan is doomed to failure. And that just doesn't stack up in history. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now, there is no doubt that three of the most powerful empires the world has ever seen, I'm using empires in inverted commas, were humbled. And those are the three most recent invasions or attempted invasions in Afghanistan. That is true. But if you look at the whole of history, what's interesting is people with bows and arrows and horses did a better job of subjugating that area than people with helicopter gunships, which is fascinating to me. So to give you some of the ideas going on here is you've got the Persian Empire. Now the Persian Empire goes back to around about sort of 7800 BC. It is really, really old. And in the Persian Empire, it was Zoroastrian. So what does that mean? Zoroastrian is the very first monotheism faith. And you've got the god of light, Ahura Mazda and you celebrate and commemorate the light that Ahura Mazda gives the world by having an eternal flame burning. There is still a temple in modern-day Iran to Zoroastrians where they claim the fire has been burning there as a symbol of Zoroastrian faith for more than 3,000 years, or for about 3,000 years. So that's a pretty amazing fact. As I said, Ahura Mazda is like, hang on, isn't there Mazda cars? Isn't that a Japanese word? No. The Japanese car manufacturer wanted to have a word that they could say but wasn't Japanese but was a good word and so they took the second half of this deity that is still worshipped today. Zoroastrians in the world are a few million. There aren't loads of them, they're not billions, but there are millions of Zoroastrian worshippers. And indeed, there is one Zoroastrian worshipper you've all heard of, Farouk Bukhara, better known as Freddie Mercury from Queen. I want to break free. So there we go, there's a famous Zoroastrian for you. But we know that round about 1800 BC, Zoroastrianism existed in Afghanistan. In fact, it is some of the earliest references to it, which is led, it is controversial, it is led to the theory that Zoroastrianism actually started in Afghanistan and moved to Persia rather than the other way around. Now, I, I can't give you a definitive answer here on this podcast, but that does show you that Afghanistan, what you see for, if you like, the first 2,000 years of Afghan history is it's quite often an epicenter of culture and learning. One of the ironies is you've heard people say the Taliban are the worst excesses of medieval barbarism. 
And it's like, well, actually, during the medieval era, Afghanistan, the region, was one of the most cultured areas in the world. It was Europe that was more barbaric than Afghanistan at that point. But yeah, yeah, there's no doubt that Afghanistan today is far more backwards than its surrounding neighbours to a certain extent. We're starting way back here. You know, Zoroastrianism in Afghanistan is happening before the foundation of the city of Rome. Okay, this is happening way before, centuries before you get all the cool Greek stuff, Battle of Thermopylae, all those plays coming from Athens and philosophy and all that stuff, centuries. If we are talking about 1800 BC, more than a millennia before all that good stuff from ancient Greece and the start of Rome. In the 500s BC, full stop, the Persian Empire, you know, the one that was fighting the Greeks, does capture the area of Afghanistan and they do it pretty easily. So, you know, where, where's the big fuss there? This doesn't lead to sort of 20 years of bloodshed and then eventually, you know, the Persians leave tails between their legs. The Persians capture that region as easily as most of the other regions they captured. Then let's jump forward a little bit. One of the things you might be aware of is the Persian Empire fought Alexander the Great and lost. And so, yeah, Alexander the Great in the 330s BC was seen marching through Afghanistan and conquering it with horses and bows and arrows. He then goes on, obviously, into modern-day Pakistan and India. That's as far as he goes. He didn't get to the mountains of Afghanistan and go, that looks hard. He just kept going. And he did it. He did it successfully. Then we get Alexander's empire breaking up into various different regions like Egypt and the Middle East and so on and so forth. He famously said on his deathbed, without a son to take over, they asked who should inherit his empire. And he said famously, Kratos, the strongest, which just led to a huge civil war, showing that, look, Alexander may not actually have been all that great. He was an amazing general. He was pretty terrible in most other parts of his life. And yeah, his legacy sucked. Apart from the legends of his successes, he didn't set up an empire that lasted beyond his lifetime, which is usually a sign of somebody not being an effective ruler. Just FYI. Then, in the first century AD, we get the Parthians, who are basically a hangover of one of Alexander's generals, sort of like ruling an area, which again is sort of like equivalent to the Persians, Iran, that kind of thing. So the Parthians in the first century AD come into Afghanistan and take it over again. So in case you're not keeping count, in the space of about 600 years, we got three different empires marching through Afghanistan and doing okay. That's sort of averaging once every 200 years. Then, you know, one of the other big ironies, I've heard people say, oh, it's easy to come into Afghanistan, it's hard to leave, you know, we're such great fighters, you know, look at all our Taliban and Mujahideen. Of course, they're all Muslim. And I've just mentioned Zoroastrianism, and there was a time when Buddhism was a big deal in Afghanistan, and Hinduism as well also appeared in Afghanistan. So when did the Muslims turn up? And the answer was there was this massive expansion in the 700s, 700s AD, where it just exploded out of the Arabian Peninsula, just, you know, all the way to southern France, you know, across the whole of North Africa, through the Iberian Peninsula, up into France. It gets sort of stopped there and pushed back a bit. But, you know, to the borders of modern day France, that's a long way west. And down into India, that is a long way east from the original Arabian Peninsula. So, of course, 
Part of that, in the 700s, we literally have Arab Muslims going into Afghanistan. And make no mistake about it, while conversion happened, not everybody was happy about these you know, foreign invaders, ethnically different, speaking a different language, having a different religion. This was not brotherly love where everyone just threw off their old faith and happily went with Islam. There were battles of conquest and violence with the expansion of Islam into Afghanistan in the 700s AD. It took centuries for, for the whole area to become Islamic. I mean, to this day, it's about 99.7% Islamic. There are a few other people out there who are obviously right now very worried. That's another example of an empire coming into Afghanistan and imposing its will, and indeed changing the culture on this occasion. The very edges, the very north of Afghanistan, was on the edges of the Silk Road. So it had contacts with China, and then on into Central Asia. And then, of course, southern Afghanistan. Pakistan is a, a sort of modern creation, so let's talk about sort of like the subcontinental, India in inverted commas, because Pakistan, India were sort of all part of the same thing for you know, more than a thousand years. But you've got the area on the borders between Pakistan and Afghanistan called the Hindu Kush, which in the local language means the place to kill Hindus. That's the place where, in other words, regularly there'd be invasion from the south and they could butcher them all in the mountains. And, you know, sometimes they push through into that area. You've then got perhaps some of the greatest conquerors of all of history in the 1200s, the Mongols arrive. And with their Mongolian efficiency, they capture Afghanistan. So hang on, we've got one, two, three, four. This is the fifth successful invasion of Afghanistan, where the locals end up having to do what the imperial overlords have said. And then in the late 1300s, you've got Timur. He's known as Emir Timur is his correct title. He is known as Tamerlane in the West because he was actually paralyzed down one side of his body after an accident. So he's Timur the Lame, which became Tamerlane. He is, in my opinion, the greatest warrior and conqueror of all time. Everyone gets their knickerings in the twist over Alexander the Great having conquered eight straight years in a row without defeat. Well, Timur had 30 straight years in a row of conquest, and he conquered more area than Alexander. In fact, the only thing that stopped him conquering China was he died of stomach cancer before he got there. The only Ottoman sultan who's ever been captured in combat that was because Timur fought him at the Battle of Ankara. But one of the other things he did was fight in Afghanistan and successfully capture it. One of the things he did, some people held up in caves, in mountains, sound familiar? Timur's solution, he would go to the top of the mountain and he would lure down people with baskets who would then set fire to the front of the caves and smoke them out. And that worked quite successfully. So Timur, with medieval technology, was able to beat an insurgency hiding in the mountains. Then in the 1500s, we get Babur, who's the sort of like founder and the sort of like, now we're getting into the era of the, the Mughals, which the Mughal Empire started basically in Afghanistan and they claim to be descendants of Timur and in this Mughal is, is their local version of Mongols. They thought that they were the, the sons basically of Genghis Khan and Timur, probably not, but they had sort of culturally similar ideas and were Muslim like Timur was and spread down into India. Interestingly, you get places like Kabul and Kandahar being important cities at the beginning, but once they conquer Delhi, they set up shop and stay basically in Delhi. They sometimes go 
go north to Kabul as like a summer residence when it gets too hot in India. But that slowly faded over time because Delhi was where it was at. It was India with the bigger population. So when people talk about the Mughal Empire, they think that they're Indian. But no, they, they were conquerors from an, another land and actually another religion. Taj Mahal is covered in Islamic script, not Hindu script, because they were Muslim. So we started... The Persians arrived in the 500s BC, Babur's in the 1500s, so we've got 2,000 years of conquest, and then we get to the British taking over India, conquering it first as the East India Company, and then later on in the late 1800s, it's now a formerly part of the British Empire. We could spend forever talking about this. Well, one of the other things that was happening, sort of like between Babur and the British, is the Sikhs were sort of like invading. They didn't capture all of Afghanistan, but they, you know, the Sikh nation fought multiple wars against the Afghans. Won some, lost a few others, but there was no love lost between the Sikhs and the Afghani people. And a little bit more on that in a moment. Because then we get into the 1800s, late 1800s, something called the Great Game. The game is on. And what this is, is because Britain's got India, the jewel in the crown of the empire, huge population, huge resource. Just generally, they set up all these tea plantations. So, you know, they're giving the world tea. But in the north, we got the czars of Russia expanding out east across the Asian steppe. A lot of Russian history before 1700 was very much centered around Moscow and sort of like in that sort of general vicinity. They were pushing east a little bit, but mainly pushing south against the Ottoman Empire and west, you know, fighting against the Swedes all the time. But really, you know, under Peter the Great onwards, they're pushing out east, which means if we're not careful, we're going to have the Russian Empire bumping up against the British Empire, which is going to lead to more potential war. So what the British were worried about is Afghanistan becoming a satellite state of Russia. And in essence, the best thing to do is Afghanistan is a nice neutral country that is a buffer between these two empires. But then there's this vying of who gets to influence the rulers of Afghanistan. And so we get the first Afghan war, which is referred to a lot, particularly with what's been happening in the 21st century in Afghanistan. It's like, well, remember the British in the first Afghan war? Yeah. I mean, that was a terrible debacle for the British. Basically, they arrived, they managed to capture the area, but then the, the local insurgents sort of surrounded them and sort of attacked them and men, women and children were killed. Make no mistake, this, you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't the British doing all the massacring, it was the local Afghans and they were, you know, just because you're the wife of a British imperial doesn't mean that you, you know, you're not a general, you don't have any weapons, you're just murdered by the local populace. You know, that's not a good thing. And the famously there was this one doctor they allowed to sort of like go back to British India to warn them of what happens if you deal with Afghanistan. Interestingly, the second Afghan war, which was far more effective and the British had learnt their lessons. They basically put in a puppet regime in Afghanistan. That one's forgotten because the British actually did rather well in that war. Also around World War One, there's another Afghan war where the British used airplanes to bomb. First time that there's aerial bombardment in Afghanistan. Things get trickier now in Afghanistan and the 20th century there is this period. Everyone sort of goes back to oh, the 1960s. You know, you get the kite runner as well talking about it like it was this area of, of sort of like, oh, peace and love and so on and so forth. Yeah, kind of. But the problem was you basically got the urban population becoming more Western and better educated. 
but you know a lot of Afghanistan is is farmland and mountains and these sort of like local tribes and local peasants they like their local customs and didn't trust this sort of like more modern way of doing things and we start to get the triggers for what we now recognize or basically you know we're going to stick to our traditions we're going to be more severe with our Islamic law we don't trust this education kind of stuff and so well yes if you were a backpacker in Kabul in the 1960s everything looked fine if you actually looked closer problems were already starting then and then it was exacerbated in the 1970s and 1979 when Afghanistan is invaded by the Soviet Union at that point because the West doesn't like the Soviet Union they start arming and training the Islamic fighters against the Soviet Union and you know before all this quite often them there was still breech loading muskets you know that local farmers would have those there might be a few lee enfields the bolt action rifles the british had in in world war 1 and 2 but that was it but by the end of the soviet war everybody's got an ak47 and you know they got rocket propelled grenades so it was the it was the soviet invasion that suddenly uh, modernized all of this and turned it into the world that we believe however because they beat the soviet union one of the fighters there was an osama bin laden and it just went round the sort of the radicals of the islamic world that it's like hey we beat a major power which is kind of true but you did it with american money american equipment american training so are you not going to give any credit to these but largely christian forces no no we're going to forget it that we're going to create our own myth just like you know afghanistan's never been invaded myth this is another myth and so I'm going to finish off with we all know what happens 9/11 happens uh, today we've had a national tragedy uh, two airplanes have crashed into the World Trade Center in an apparent terrorist attack on our country Osama bin Laden's in Afghanistan so I'm going to say quite rightly when you've had a, the largest terrorist attack in human history around about 3000 people killed you're going to expect a response to that and so NATO forces go in it isn't just America there are large amounts of Canadians and British people there as well and Australians and it is genuinely a multinational invasion of Afghanistan but but this is the point where I'm going to say I want to sort of like unpick some of these phrases I was doing a couple of lectures I, I wasn't working in but I was going to a, a local college and I remember just before this invasion there were various posters up going you know the Taliban regime's terrible we got to do something about it have a meeting at eight o'clock on Thursday you know basically it's like the Taliban are bad they're terrible with human rights and women's rights we need to do something about it and I saw those posters and went, yeah, yeah, probably. I'm not entirely sure what your meeting on 8 o'clock in, in West London is going to do to stop the Taliban, but okay, you, you do you. And then the war happened and I went back again and there were all the posters, all those posters have been taken down is stop the war. It's like, okay, fine, yeah, I mean, people are dying in this war, that's, that's not a good thing, but your leaflet campaign didn't bring down the Taliban, maybe this military campaign will. And this is the thing. I like Afghanistan as a conversation because it shows you how complicated things are. And when there was all that image and footage of like everything just collapsing and Kabul being captured there's this footage of all the airplanes rushing out and everybody was sort of saying oh, it's just like the fall of Saigon yes and no undeniably this is a collapse of a regime that the Americans were trying to prop up just like South Vietnam and undeniably this was not the plan to rush out as quickly as possible with everybody on military equipment but big big difference when the communist Vietnamese captured South Vietnam and Saigon, 
They didn't go on the news and say, here are all the things that are going to calm down America. Basically, it's like, ha, we won, we're the best. However, the Taliban, it should be remembered, back in the early 2000s and, and late 1990s, they were so severe they wouldn't even allow TV. They wouldn't ever go on TV to make announcements or pronouncements. But the first thing they did is they did go on TV and they said all the things that America wanted to hear, which was A, we're not going to harbour terrorists, B, we'll be nice to women within Sharia law, and C, we are going to not carry out uh, reprisal killings. Now. Talk is cheap. Let's actually see what happens. But at the very least, I mean, this is the thing. When people say, oh, the Br Americans pulled out too quickly. Oh, why didn't they wait till winter? America has had 20 years to fix the Afghan problem and didn't. So if the whole thing collapsed in a week and you've had 20 years to set it up for you to leave, another six months was going to make n no difference whatsoever. And... What's happened is terrible, and it's very worrying. And, you know, if I was a woman in Afghanistan, I'd be very worried at the moment. But you can't force people to think another way. That's dangerous. You know, you're becoming a bit of a fascist dictator. If you're going to, if my way of, way of thinking is right, you've got to do it my way. And if you don't, well, what, what, what are the repercussions? You're going to throw them in prison? You're going to kill them? It's problematic. It's hard. And for 20 years, huge amount, billions have been sunk into Afghanistan. Multiple nations have been going around Afghanistan talking about the benefits of education and vaccination and female education as well, health campaigns. Didn't stick, did it? Didn't make them fight for all of that when the, when the Taliban went for it. So I don't have a solution for Afghanistan, but I'm going to tell you right now, if, and it's a big if, the Taliban do stick to their words, Actually, it's mission accomplished for America, because America was never there to modernize Afghanistan. America was there to stop it being a terrorist state. And if that happens, America's happy and safer, and the Taliban are happy, because they're not being bombed by drones anymore. And maybe that's the best we can hope from the situation. And if you do have a solution, I'd love to hear it on Twitter. That's it from me, slightly longer one this time round. I'm at Jem Daduccio on Twitter. Please, you know, hit subscribe and all this good stuff. Spread the word. An interesting one this time round. We started with Rambo and we finished with modern politics. Thanks very much. Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage of the French Open begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. 